Welcome to the Corona of Thorns podcast. I'm Father Peter Zwans, and today is the 14th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O God, who in the abasement of your Son have raised up a fallen world, fill your faithful with holy joy. For on those you have rescued from slavery to sin, you bestow eternal gladness. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the prophet Ezekiel. The Spirit came into me and made me stand up, and I heard the Lord speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to the rebels who have turned against me. Till now, they and their ancestors have been in revolt against me. The sons are defiant and obstinate. I am sending you to them to say, The Lord says this, Whether they listen or not, this set of rebels shall know there is a prophet among them. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our eyes are fixed on the Lord, pleading for his mercy. Our eyes are fixed on the Lord, pleading for his mercy. To you have I lifted up my eyes, you who dwell in the heavens, my eyes like the eyes of slaves on the hand of their lords. Our eyes are fixed on the Lord, pleading for his mercy. Like the eyes of a servant on the hand of her mistress, so our eyes are on the Lord our God, till he show us mercy. Our eyes are fixed on the Lord, pleading for his mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord have mercy. We are filled with contempt, Indeed, all too full is our soul, with the scorn of the rich, with the proud man's disdain. Our eyes are fixed on the Lord, pleading for his mercy. A reading from the second letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. In view of the extraordinary nature of these revelations, to stop me from getting too proud, I was given a thorn in the flesh, an angel of Satan to beat me and stop me from getting too proud. About this thing, I have pleaded with the Lord three times for it to leave me. But he has said, My grace is enough for you. My power is at its best in weakness. So I shall be very happy to make my weaknesses my special boast, so that the power of Christ may stay over me. And that is why I am quite content with my weaknesses and with insults, hardships, persecution, and the agonies I go through for Christ's sake. For it is when I am weak that I am strong. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alleluia, alleluia. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor. Alleluia. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus went to his hometown and his disciples accompanied him. With the coming of the Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue and most of them were astonished when they heard him. They said, Where did the man get all this? 
What is this wisdom that has been granted him, and these miracles that are worked through him? This is the carpenter, surely the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Jude and Simon. His sisters too, are they not here with us? And they would not accept him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is only despised in his own country, among his own relations and his own house. And he could work no miracle there, though he cured a few sick people by laying his hands on them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So when I was in the seminary, we used to have to practice giving homilies um, to each other. Now, um, I've not been a priest so long that I don't remember what it's like being a layperson. Um, but, uh, you know, not all of us priests are created equal in the uh, sermonizing department. Um, and, you know, some of us need to spend a good deal of time, you know, learning how to write homilies and how to deliver them. So, you know, that's what the seminary is there for. Well, anyway, we'd be broken into groups of four with one priest guiding us through the process. And each of us would preach to the other three and the priest. um, And then we'd be critiqued for our performance. Well, once we were ordained deacons, we were given the opportunity once in the year to preach at a Mass before the whole seminary. Now, this isn't terribly edifying, but there was a certain amount of competition among our seminarians. And, of course, we all wanted to be the ones who were known for being good homilists among the community. So, you know, whenever one of the brethren got up to preach, well, let's just say there wasn't always an especially supportive atmosphere. (laughs) It was a bit like going to the car races, you know, you really just go to see the crashes. Well, I remember getting up and preaching to the whole seminary one time, and the chapel was full of guys leaning back with their arms folded, you know, waiting to be convinced. Or maybe waiting for my homily to collapse into a fiery, twisted wreckage. Well, in fact, today, still, you know, Priests remark to me that seminaries are in fact the hardest places to preach because, you know, they're filled with hypercritical men who all think they can do better. But, you know, another reason why it was so difficult to preach to my brothers in the seminary was that, you know, they knew me through and through. You know, after living with them all for three years, they'd seen me at my best, they'd seen me at my worst. Um... So how could I possibly exhort them to patience when I'd been growling at them after waiting too long in the line for my food? Um, You know, it was tough to preach the gospel to them because each of them could point to a score of different ways in which I didn't live up to the gospel myself. I suppose the experiences that, uh, you know, I had in trying to preach to my fellow seminarians and the faculty in the seminary was You know, maybe there's a bit of this going on with Jesus back in Nazareth, you know, trying to preach to his family and friends. You can kind of hear the incredulity in their questions. Well, where did he get all this wisdom from? I know where he's from. You know, he's Mary and Joseph boy. He's a tradie, a carpenter. 
and here he is preaching to us. It's like they know too much about Jesus. He's just a little bit too familiar to them. And, you know, maybe just like my fellow seminarians, they just knew too much about me and that that became a stumbling block to them receiving the gospel. Well, there's a deeper question that's presented here. Yes, these are the people who grew up with Jesus. They know his humanity through and through. But have they been lulled into a false sense? Are the people of Nazareth really the ones who know Jesus best? Or is their incredulity keeping them from truly seeing who is standing before them? Well, the interesting thing about the gospel today is that it's clearly not the people who grew up with Jesus who knew him best. It's his disciples who do. It's the ones who are open to receiving Christ's wisdom, the ones who are willing to see his identity on display through the miracles that he performs. They're the ones who, it turns out, really know who Jesus is. What do the Nazarenes know about Jesus? Well, they know some of his rallies. They know Mary. They know he's a carpenter. But all of that seems to negate the fact that the wisdom and the miracles might actually indicate that he's not just those things that the Nazarenes know about him. But there's something very curious about the gospel that we've heard today, something that's you know troubled me for a long time about Jesus. We hear that Jesus was amazed at the lack of faith of his fellow townsfolk. They can't seem to get past the fact that he grew up among them, that he's the carpenter from down the road. But what troubles me is the next line. And he could work no miracles there. It seems the wrong way round to me. I think if I were Jesus, I'd go in there performing miracles so that they would believe in me. Yeah, sure, he's the carpenter's son, but look at this fountain that's flowing with wine. <laughs> you know, Aunt Betsy's out of her wheelchair and, you know, she's doing the dance from Thriller. <laughs> and, you know, Blind Freddy, he's out the front and he's doing the Sudoku in today's paper. Surely that's a better way to go. I mean, if I were Jesus, I'd prove it. None of this faith stuff. If I were Jesus, I wouldn't just visit my disciples after the resurrection. Why hang around with those who, are, who already believe? If I were Jesus, I think I'd be paying Pontius Pilate a bit of a visit. But this isn't what Jesus does. He doesn't seem to perform miracles to prove who he is. No, he seems to beckon a response of faith from someone before he heals them. And the healing then seems to come as the great confirmation of the faith that they already possess. This is Christ's way of doing things. So much so that when he encounters all the opposition from his hometown, he doesn't turn himself into a sideshow of signs and portents. He just leaves, recognise that the people just haven't given him anything to work with. 
Now, there's an interesting little textual detail in the Gospel today. It says that Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. The Greek word ophthalmazen is perhaps better translated like shocked. Jesus is shocked at their lack of belief. Mark uses this word shocked a few times in his gospel. But the other times, he uses the the word to refer to Jesus. It's the crowds who are shocked at Jesus. They're amazed at the wonders which he works. But here in Nazareth, it's not the crowds who are shocked. It's Jesus who is shocked at the crowds. So why didn't Jesus just shock them back? Why didn't he just perform some miracle so that they would believe? Why didn't he give them some indisputable truth to confirm that he is the Son of God? You all know Jesus is the carpenter, and you presume that he's the carpenter's son, but he's not, is he? Well, I suppose the reason why Jesus doesn't just shock the crowds Uh, is a question really that we can only ask him and, and allow him to answer. But I guess if I were to take a crack at it, wondering what Jesus might say, I think I'd, you know, try and hone in a little more closely on what faith truly is. You see, I think sometimes we can get an overly intellectual idea of the notion of faith. Faith is knowing something that you don't have certain proof for. It's having a piece of data in your head, some information. Faith is getting up and reciting the creed and being able to agree with it all. Well, yes, faith is all those things, I suppose, but but that doesn't describe it fully. Faith is also an act. The faith describes the things we believe, but faith also describes the act by which we believe them. So, you know what, maybe it becomes a little clearer if we change the word faith to trust. When Jesus wants us to have faith, it's not just that he wants us to know the truth about something. He wants us to have an act of faith. That means that we have a relationship with him. If we're to have faith, it means we trust. If Jesus flew into Nazareth and, you know, shot a few lightning bolts at the people sitting in the synagogue there, then sure, they might get the message that Jesus was God. But fundamentally, the people of Nazareth, they're unwilling to believe. They're unwilling to hear the wisdom of Jesus' teachings. They're unwilling to trust the carpenter from down the road. And a few lightning bolts might supply the people with some facts about Jesus, but do they have faith? Are they willing to trust yet? Are they willing to enter into a relationship with Jesus, one that perhaps calls them to be humble, one that asks them to acknowledge that, you know what, Mary's boy, he's more than me. Are they prepared to become his disciples? Well... All these questions are posed to us too. Jesus won't work miracles for us if we don't have faith. And again, that's not about giving a mental assent to the creed and the teachings of the church. Important as all that is, 
It's about having a deep and abiding trust in Christ. It's the people who come up to Jesus and say, if you want to, you can heal me. If you remember the gospel from last week, it's the woman with the hemorrhage who reaches forward in faith and in trust just to touch the fringe of Jesus' cloak. It's Jairus, the synagogue official, who humbly asks Jesus to come to his home and to heal his daughter. The people of Nazareth are the photo negative of these men and women who approach Jesus in faith. So when we have faith like Jairus and the woman with the hemorrhage, when we come to Jesus with trust like them, then, as Jesus says, we'll have faith to move mountains. Then, Jesus will work wonders for us. Thanks for praying with us, and may God bless you abundantly so that this day may give glory to God the Father.